0: Good morning, Mark. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thanks, Kai. How are you doing?
0: I'm fine. Thanks a lot. Um, (laughs) Welcome, listeners, to the second episode of um, Two Developers from Down Under. Um, Today's hosts are Mark Mandel and Kai Koenig, as two weeks ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing changes.
0: (laughs) Nothing changes. Um, To kick this episode off, we thought we um, have a bit of a chat about a very special day. Today, <laughs> the 1st of March. And when we looked around to, you know, just find to, to find out what is actually going on today, we learned that today is Beer Day in Iceland. Isn't that awesome?
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. I actually don't drink beer.
0: Well, that's fair enough. But you <laughs> know, like, to celebrate a beer day in a little nation like Iceland is quite surprising. I mean, if Germany had a beer day, probably... Germany has a beer day I would guess Germany has Oktoberfest oh yeah it's like beer a beer month (laughs) true shouldn't you know this (laughs) you wouldn't believe it I was I never ever attended Oktoberfest in my whole life because I'm not really into beer either but you know I just yeah I don't know so um, the beer day in Iceland just to you know unreal the mystery around that basically marks the end of the prohibition in Iceland in, um, that lasted, that's unbelievable, until March 1st, 1989.
1: I was nine years old.
0: I was 15. Wow. You're I'm old. <laughs> Gosh. Alrighty, so what else has happened in the last two weeks?
1: Uh, in the last two weeks, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff lying around on our document of doom. Um, I wanted to talk very quickly about Terry or Tarrant Ryan's um, book that he actually came out with a while ago, uh, "Driving Technical Change." That uh, have you read it?
0: I um, have glanced over it. To be honest, I haven't read it completely. Terry gave me um, a review copy at CF Objective. And I yep. haven't got wrong to completely read it. But from what I've seen so far, it looks like a really, really interesting book.
1: Yeah, so for those people who haven't looked at it, um, you can it just if you Google driving technical change, you can pick up a copy, like an ebook copy or even buy a paper copy, which is crazy in this age, um, where Terry goes through, basically what he goes through is a series of archetypes for people that you might run into when you want to change the organization that you're in. Um, or change some of the, the technical aspects, like certain things you might want to do within your organisation. So he sets up some sort of archetypal people about that you'll run into quite often. Um, he gives you a series of techniques for dealing with those people, and he matches those techniques up with the archetypes that he set up. And he does it in a pretty good way. But I was actually reading through it, and it, it actually struck me. I almost thought to myself that the book's name should almost be How to Be Just a Better Developer.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I was actually going to ask you, like, do you think it's a book mainly targeting developers or, you know, yeah. technical managers or designers? Or could definitely, it be for anyone?
1: I think it's definitely a book that's targeted at developers. I, don't, I think that's definitely its its target audience um, because I think it, it comes from that perspective of the frustrated developer who's working in an organization where he's seeing stuff where he goes, oh, we could be doing this so much better and saving ourselves so much time, but I can't get that into effect. Um... Look, I think you could. I could see technical managers reading it, um, and it would. It, it's actually interesting. That's why I almost say it's how to be a better developer, or maybe even how to how to help your developers better, even from a managerial perspective. Because reading through it, suddenly you see yourself in those particular archetypes, and you start going and you start sort of opening your mind and going, "Okay, maybe I should be more open to certain things, or all that sort of stuff." Because the person who Terry is talking to. In the book, is a person who's very open to new ideas, who's interested in doing new things, who's looking to improve all the stuff that they're trying to do. Which not necessarily everyone in our community, unfortunately, is. Um, we hit a variety of people in our in our uh, existence as developers and and our careers who have a variety of perspectives. And we all have our own emotional content in terms of how we've we've gone through that sort of stuff. Um, so. It's Reading through it, yeah, I very much sort of picked it up and went, okay, you know, if I'm a developer and this is the way I am, and maybe I've actually identified one of the archetypes that I could necessarily be, maybe I should certainly look at that from more of a rational perspective and say, okay, maybe I'm, as, you know, for example, maybe I could say, like, I'm time crunched, you know, oh, wait, I'm actually, you know, really stuck for time when I'm doing stuff. So there's actually two things I can do there. One, I can either stop and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to dedicate the time to listening to this person. Or I could actually come back and say, you know what, I know I'm time crutched. If somebody comes to me with something and say, listen, mate, I've got like zero seconds. Give me the short answer. Give me the the answer of how does this make my life easier and how this saves me time. And then we both can walk away happy. So it's both also recognizing in myself what, what I'm doing not necessarily wrong, but what factors are influencing me while I've got those factors, and also being able to communicate to other people, hey, this is what I need. You know, if you can give me what I need, then we can both walk away happy, and something good can happen, rather than just being dismissive.
0: That, um, so that's actually a very good point. I mean, you know, it's very easy to forget that every person you meet in your you know consulting or work approach or work experience every yeah. day has a different history right and you know people have made different experiences in their past you know career and it might be that he all of a sudden deal with someone who used to work in a corporate for a very long time and got thrown into some sort of a startup and that is obviously a cultural change right and people people react to that stuff very very differently i found
1: yeah. Oh yeah, I can I can totally see that sort of stuff happening. So yeah, fasc- I thought it was actually a really fascinating book from a variety of perspectives. And not just in terms of obviously, you know, the way he's presented it for, you know, being able to change the organization you're in from within and, and giving you some really compelling content that way. But also just some very interesting stuff to think about in terms of, you know, your how you deal with other people as well. Yeah. So
0: So you would recommend the book basically? To-
1: I would definitely recommend the book. Very, very interesting book and um yeah, I think very good reading for almost any developer at all even if you're not looking at making te- driving technical change just just actually I would say it's almost driving technical change in yourself
0: Okay, interesting Very interesting um, I was actually planning to talk quickly about a book as well um, and it's actually a book to which you have contributed I think um, It's um, called Fusion Anthology which um, was edited by Michael and Judith Dinowitz Yep. And I think it's from A-Press, isn't it?
1: Uh, I think I should know this because I actually helped technically edit the
0: book. I think it's from... I'm pretty sure it's from A-Press, basically. And yeah, the, the idea of the up. book... I mean, I read it I, I read it quite a while ago. And the idea of the book is really it's a collection of articles about, you know, cold fusion, And um, the special thing about it, from my point of view, is really that it pretty much deals with a lot of advanced topics you know, the stuff you don't find in, I don't know, the common courseware or the stuff you don't really find in, um, you know, the series of books from, from Ben Forda, for example, that introduced ColdFusion as a web platform or a web development kit for new developers. So I've found the book actually really, really good, even though I am obviously new a bunch of, or well, most of the things, but it's, you know, a really nice, um, book to have on your desk to get easy access to a certain topic you are short of knowledge on, for example. Yep. Let's say you know you want to learn some more about um, error handling in ColdFusion, Stuff like, you know, on missing template, which yep. you know, or on missing met- method or something like that. And that's stuff that a lot of developers don't really know about. So you know that's that book is or you know that book is your opportunity to just um, read up on that quite easily read an article it's like 15 or 20 pages and you know pretty much you know how it works and how you could use that feature and you don't have to read the whole book at once you know just read like one of the 40 odd chapters in it it takes you maybe half an hour to read it if even and you you know learn something really nicely done from my point of view
1: do you think it's like a, a book everyone should read or is it more like um, you might necessarily go through stuff and be like, oh, that's cool or that's cool or sort of add stuff to your, your programming game?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's obviously not a book for beginners, right? If you're new to Fusion, if you started last week or even a month ago and you might even be a newbie to web development, that's definitely not a book for you. Yep. But if you work with Fusion and let's say... Even if you you work with ColdFusion for years, you know, coming from ColdFusion three and four back in the days, and maybe in your you know all day work you're stuck with the way thing as things have been done back then, you know, scripting pages or scripting HTML pages, never used components, never used something like, you know, objects or ORM or things like that, then this book is a really good way to upskill on certain individual topics you want to learn more about, I think um the the other thing to look at it's not just about cold fusion, so it's not just about features of cold fusion. maybe it's also about frameworks so some frameworks are introduced um even though you know it's probably um probably a few things have happened in the framework world since yeah. the book was written i guess you know i i'm pretty sure the cold spring article for example is by now slightly slightly outdated and it might be you know Similar for the, basics.
1: The, the basics would be the
0: same. Yeah, the basics will be the same. But, you know, it might yeah. be that you have to still look up stuff in the documentation to make it work with the current version you're working with. Um, but the book also covers development tools, which is quite nice. Yep. You know, things like using tools like ColdFusion Builder, CF Eclipse, using the debugger in ColdFusion, which, again, a lot of people... Don't even know there is a debugger in Cold Fusion.
1: I love the debugger.
0: It's so useful, isn't it? I, I mean, love it's the like debugger. it's awesome. And you know, like I said, so many people have no clue that it's in Cold Fusion and that you can do useful stuff with it. I, I think. Can
1: I? I can I, Can I segue just for a minute? I was uh, actually going to ask I, I, you. Here you go. On. All right. I, right. I, have,
0: I have the feeling we have actually the same same thought. I think the reason why people are very you know cautious with debugging in Cold Fusion is because pe- a lot of people got burned. With the old debugger in ColdFusion Studio 4, there was some sort of a step through yeah, debugger I in never there. Used that at but I don't what, think I ever it, used that one. It never really worked anyway properly. And then people always thought, oh, you know, the only way to debug ColdFusion code is using CF abort and CF output. Dump.
1: Yep. And CF dump.
0: Yeah, and CF dump.
1: Don't forget that. No, I was actually going to ask you, because this is an interesting discussion. What do you find you use the debugger for? Do you find you use it for just any error you come across, or are there specific circumstances you use it for? Or um, when, when do you find you go down that road?
0: I don't use it for any error I come across, because sometimes, I mean, you have a logical error that yeah. doesn't get reflected in unit testing or whatever, and you, but you have a good idea where it is, and then it's like, oh, you know, I just... Know where to look down. for and I, yeah, and I, yeah, throw in a dump and that's actually a quick and dirty solution and most in most cases you know if you have that feeling that's where it goes wrong it actually works and you know it, it basically you know it's, the, it's mm. that's the place where it goes wrong I find it extremely useful for those more complex issues where you really have no clue why it's happening and when you want to you know go through a whole set of code and see yep. where it falls over basically
1: Yeah, okay, cool. All right, we're on the same. Yeah, I find that, um, actually I find that when I'm doing my open source stuff and I'm doing like framework code, that's normally where I find I use the debugger a lot more because it really sometimes, what I want to see is what what methods got called in what order
0: Mm, and rather than
1: going through and adding like logging statements through all the whole thing, which is just, can be painful. Yeah and can, can produce errors. Yeah, it's much easier to just turn on the debugger and say, okay, what methods get called? Where does it go through? And then, you know, just put in breakpoints because I need to see what's what's kicking through and see all the variables when go through. And that's a lot easier than than trying to log it manually and all that sort of fun stuff. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, so we were talking about the Adobe Confusion Anthology before. I took, we, we went off.
0: No, that's fine. So, I mean, you know, it introduces the debugger. It introduces all sorts of development tools, you know, stuff like... Um, for example, aren't to, yep. you know, automate your development or to introduce a build process. It talks surprisingly a lot about subversion, which is, you know, like, yep. interesting. Um, but, you know, i I rather have someone use subversion than no version Nothing. control at all. Yep. So, from that point of view, that's all right, I think.
1: Well, the book was published, what, April 2010?
0: Yeah, uh, it's a, Yeah.
1: So, so it's got it's it's still a good book, but obviously it's got some it's got some uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a little bit older than some. So yeah, I don't think Git was really around or Mercurial or any of that sort of stuff. So well, I think they've, they've, been, they've been so around. But... It was around. It wasn't as popular. It's yeah, probably agree. the way. Yeah, um, so yeah, it doesn't really show up as much, and everyone was really pushing subversion at the time as as the VCS of choice. So
0: no, that's fine. Not, but yeah. overall, I th- I still think it's a really good book for a for an advanced Cold Fusion developer or for someone who wants to upskill on you know certain topics. And it's easy enough to find out you know what's inside. Just go to yep. um, the Apress dot com website, have a look for the book, and they have a preview of the um, table of contents and everything on there. So you know it's easy to see if the book is interesting enough for your purpose. That you want to basically invest the money into the print book or the ebook?
1: Yeah. Do you buy print books anymore, or are you an ebook reader?
0: I'm an ebook reader. Yeah, I. Me too. It's quite interesting. I started with ebooks, basically with a Sony e-reader. Oh yeah. Um, and that was about Christmas 2009, 2010, because a friend of mine brought me one from Holland, because yep. at the time you couldn't get them here in Australia, New Zealand. Yep. And um I started to convert books and to read books on the Sony and that was fine and I made to be honest, I mainly use it for novels or for, you know, like stories basically, not for technical books, because what I found mm. is with technical books with a lot of diagrams and you know Yeah colored PDFs and things like that, the the e ink technology didn't really work that well for me. And that might be just, you know, it might be a feature of the Sony e-reader. I don't want to generalize that, or it might be just me, but I didn't really like reading technical books on it. I loved it for novels. And yep. then the iPad came around, and I wanted an iPad anyway, because, it you know, I'm unfortunately for my... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an Apple fanboy. I admit it. And that's just what it is, you know? The, <laughs> the iPad is awesome. The iPad is the best tablet around for, my, for my point of view. So it's fine, you know? I wanted an iPad, and I thought, oh, cool, you know, you, I can start reading... PDFs on the iPad. And that's really great. You know, I read all my technical books on the iPad. I've got technical documentation for things like, you know, ColdFusion, Connect, Lifecycle, all the Adobe products as PDFs on my iPad. And I just take it to clients and I can look stuff up and it's really cool. I wasn't so sure about the iPad for novels because the display is obviously quite bright.
1: Yeah, you got a backlit display.
0: And I thought, mm, you know, I'm not quite sure how that works when you want to read at night. How, in, did, in how did you find it? I find it actually fine. That was okay. what really surprised me. Um, for novels, I just dim the brightness as much as possible, and then it's fine. <laughs> you know, even uh, even, if, even for, you know, if I read like two or three hours in one go, it doesn't strain my eyes. It's perfectly fine. Um, and what I found is since I... Purchased the iPad in I don't know June last year or something. The um, I haven't used my Sony e-reader at all. Interesting. And then you know, finally I sold it basically because it was just sitting here and you know de- gathering dust basically, which is not really what it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, and it's it's a cool device. It's a cool product. I really like it, but I just couldn't get myself to carry around two. So the Sony e-reader was just you know staying at home the whole time and then yeah
1: yeah no I picked up a Kindle uh, a while ago now I actually kind of remember it would have been late last year and I love it I absolutely adore it um, and I'm I've got a huge book collection in fact so much so that my wife complains about it on a regular basis because it takes up so much room um, and and yeah I love it I definitely love it for reading novels um, I love the screen on the Kindle I think it's incredible just in terms of just ease of reading like it's just so much so nice to just be able to just look at because that e- the technology is lovely um i use it for technical books um okay. i think i think it's probably easier to uh sort of browse through a technical book um in a in a paperback form i'm sure probably on a tablet's so are probably a bit easier because i think it's it's easier to sort of skip through pages on like a tablet isn't it? you got like a sliding bar and things like that for
0: yeah, exactly. That's yeah. What, what, what the um, iBooks application has. If a, if a PDF with 500 pages, I've got yeah. some sort of a bar and I can, you know, fast forward to page 430-ish and yeah. then do a bit of, you know, flipping by doing a swipe to find out where I exactly want to go.
1: Yeah. I find it's not too bad on the Kindle. As long as the Kindle's – as long as the the eBook I'm looking at – I don't look at PDFs on there because that's just a pain unless there's absolutely no, no other choice, but – um yeah, I find if the book's got a decent table of contents, I just flick back to the table of contents, flick to where I need to go, and I can find the information I need pretty quickly. So, okay. uh,
0: it's quite interesting. I mean, yeah. um, there is the Kindle uh, Kindle app for the iPad as well, right? And yeah. um, Diana bought a Kindle book a while ago. Yeah, and I should actually you know ask her how her experience with the Kindle reader is, and you know have a look into using the Kindle reader on the iPad potentially as well because everything I do is usually either through the iBooks app or it's PDFs of eBooks I had before which I just throw into iTunes and sync them with the iPad and then they end up in the in the iBooks app as well
1: yeah just yeah that's fair enough I like the Kindle system simply because it's it's well it's easy and I love the fact that it syncs between devices which is so nice
0: Ah, uh, yeah, that's that's a, that's a fair point. So if you, you know, when you switch to your mobile, yeah, you basically uh-huh. have the bookmarks and where you're currently are and all that stuff. Yeah, um, I go to my so
1: I go to my phone and my phone goes, oh, I see you're on page 453. Would you like to go there? And I go, yes, that would be lovely.
0: Yeah, that is handy. I agree.
1: And so it doesn't matter what device I'm on, which is great. But I wish, um, yeah, there's some books you can't get here in Australia so you have to kind of go through UK channels or other stuff so if it doesn't go through the Kindle system that doesn't happen which is a little frustrating
0: mm, okay cool so we spent 20 minutes talking about books and e readers interesting <laughs> um, should we maybe carry on to yeah, sure. some more real interesting topics Confusion right. and Flash and stuff
1: okay where, where would you like to go from here Kai
0: I think we should just go through our secret list of things we're going Topics. to cover. All right, um, pick a topic. I can pick a topic, so pick a topic. let's talk about Adam Lehman.
1: Okay. Let's talk about Adam Lehman.
0: So Mark, what's the story about Adam Lehman?
1: So apparently he's the flash builder, uh, product manager now.
0: That is quite interesting, right? A quite interesting career change, isn't it?
1: I think the joke's going around that after this he's going to end up at atlassian, and then after that he's going to end up at Microsoft. But
0: yeah, where would that idea come from? Interesting. <laughs> I it? don't know. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I think he will be an awesome product manager for Flash Builder. Um, he's been he's been fantastic for
1: Cold Fusion because so. he's
0: passionate. Yeah, and sorry. I mean, there's the word of you know Adam in quotes leading with grenades, Lima, right? <laughs> So he is passionate, and he fights for his passion, and that's really cool. And I think a product like Flash Builder or the whole Flash platform really needs someone like that.
1: Okay. I actually don't have that much experience with the Flash platform or Flash Builder products, so um, feel free to take charge.
0: Um, on,
1: on on that topic. Oh, on
0: that topic. <laughs> I, I don't want to, you know, I don't have, have much more to say on that. I'm just thinking, like, you know, Flash gets criticized so much currently because it's in that you know tension of um html5 javascript Uh web standards versus the flash platform and you know why would people still want to build stuff with flash and shouldn't it go away and yada 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 right so if you have someone like adam in a role um, that is actively meant to you know push the development and new features and the whole product um i think that can just be a good thing to be honest
1: Yeah. No, I agree completely. Actually, it's really funny. I was reading through his blog post and um, he said when he was 20 years old, he built a generator prototype. Do you remember generator? Sure, I do. And actually, um, because back when I was doing my, was it 3rd year? Yeah, it was 3rd year uni. I did a project with a friend of mine where we basically built... um, Uh, It was basically a CMS with a Flash front end, so you had, like, movable windows and all sorts Mm -hmm. of things like that. And at the time, that sort of stuff wasn't really around. It was sort of RIA before RIA was around. And um, there was no way at the time of actually dynamically generating images inside Flash, so you couldn't pull, you know, just give me a JPEG or give me a a GIF. And um, so we ended up using Generator to do it. We had this trial version of Generator, and it was all we used Generator for. It was just to pull in images. That was it. And then I think about a month later... They released Flash and they're like, oh, you can bring in images dynamically now. Which are just going, oh, well, no need for that anymore.
0: <laughs> when was that? Your third year of uni?
1: Third year of uni would have been 2001.
0: Oh, ah, interesting. Yeah, 2002. See, that was when Flash MX was released. And that yeah. was the first release which you can sort of call like, you know, the first step towards Flash-based rears. Yeah. I think with, you know, components and the hook into um, called Fusion MX via remoting and all those things, basically.
1: Yeah. We were doing it all through I think load XML, I think it was. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's quite interesting, you know, when you think about Generator, it was I think a tremendously expensive product at the oh, time, it was right? It's
1: ridiculous. Yeah, it was like twenty or thirty thousand dollars or something, I think. And then
0: oh, well. when I don't know, when when was Flex One released? In two thousand three? Or even early two thousand four, I can't remember really.
1: Something like that, yeah, I can't remember. You know, around
0: that. that time, basically when Flex one point came out, um people started to say like, well, you know, what is actually the difference of Flex and Generator? Because Mm. Flex at that time was a server product. I don't know if you can remember that if you ever used it actually.
1: I didn't use it, but I remember. (laughs)
0: Um, And it was tremendously expensive. You know, given what it was doing, it was basically a basic component and class library and it was a server-side compiler. That was really what it is. You know, and Macromedia charged quite a steep amount of money of that. I think... And, you know, I don't want to diss the product because it was obviously the first release and they didn't really know which direction to take it. But I mm. think at the time, in overall Germany, um, Macromedia sold about five or six licenses of Flex 1 and Flex 1.5. And three or yep. four of those licenses were th- were sold through my employer at the time. Okay. And it's like, you know, it's like it was not really a big market because people had trouble seeing the justification. And then with Flex yep. 2... That's really when things started to take off, from my point of view. You know, like the library was not open source or the the SDK, but it was free of charge at least, and that really, you know, made it much easier for people to adopt it.
1: Yeah, I um, I think I definitely saw a few websites come out with the, I think it was Flex 1.5. I think was the the release that sort of sat out there. But um, yeah, I think (laughs) there were probably a lot of people who were a little upset after everything went kind of quote unquote free and went, ah. but I think that's probably um, the way of all things, if you've spent some time working in the software industry, there's there's all those ebbs and flows that, that come through and things change, so it makes things a little bit fun.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, Spectra. Oh, Spectra, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Spectra is, look, I, I actually still have the original Spectra book here at home. Really? Yeah. As a print book, because I can't get it as an ebook. I would. I probably I wouldn't even give the the print book away. Just you know, for the sake of owning it, actually. (laughs) I
1: think I started getting more serious into CF pretty much just as Spectra died.
0: It's interesting. Spectra was some sort of a. It was kept alive for a while as open source, wasn't it?
1: They released the open source. I don't know if anyone did anything with it. To be honest, I think
0: it's like. The last commercial release was one point five or so, and then one point five point two was made available under some free or open source license and if I'm not totally wrong, I actually think that Ray Kempton is some sort of the gatekeeper of the spectra code or something like that <laughs> I think we need to investigate that actually. there's you know someone in the community who is actually you know taking care of that still.
1: Well is it is Spectro on RA Forge? Now you got me wondering.
0: I don't know. It used to have some sort of a a separate site on the old Macromedia side, but I couldn't tell you what happened to it. Often. It's not on
1: RA Forge. I'm just now I'm curious. Got me looking for it.
0: So we, we can all hear you typing. That's alright. On your no. old school I IBM keyboard or whatever it is. It's a
1: Weird old keyboard that I think I picked up at some point. I think I click 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 click. Yeah, I can't find it anywhere.
0: Yeah, we should actually investigate that and you know talk about that a little bit next uh, in two weeks or so. <laughs> at least let people know where we found it on if we found it.
1: If we found it exactly. Yep. Wow, that sounds good.
0: So yeah, to wrap that topic up basically. So I think it's a good move for Adam. it's yeah, a very definitely. good move, and it's a very good move for um, Flash Builder because they get someone who's actually going to fight for the Flash platform pretty badly. Yeah, that yeah.
1: sounds good. I like it. And uh, Alison Hussler, who was the marketing manager for CF, is moving across with Adam as well. And she's lovely to deal with. I've dealt with her running conferences and stuff. And so she's, is she's Alison really to... actually
0: going to do the um, product marketing for Flash Builder or for f- the Flash platform in general? I, didn't I think re- I couldn't really just, find it says that out here,
1: like. and I'll, I'll read it so I don't misquote, uh, P.S. Allison Huselid, who I assume, I hope, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, my marketing manager, in, or my marketing partner in crime is joining me as the Flash Builder uh, Marketing Manager.
0: Oh, I didn't see the P.S. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yep. So I assume it's, part, yeah, the Flash Builder Marketing Manager.
0: Cool. Yeah, that should be fun.
1: So That should be good. So you uh, you recently came back from a conference, which I know you've been dying to talk about.
0: I'm not dying to talk about it, but it was a conference I really, really enjoyed, basically. And I mean, you know, I I really enjoy it every year. And the conference is um, WebStock in Wellington in New Zealand. Um, so give us
1: a brief explanation of what WebStock is.
0: It's basically, it's a web conference, right? So, oh, well, it, it started as a web conference as the name lets you think it does, basically. And what... What happened over the years is they moved away from being a bit of you know a technical or a web conference in general to be a very inspirational event on web on design on technology in general and it's okay. just an awesome conference it's you know basically created with um lots of love the guys who organize it um Mike Brown and Tash Lampard basically put so much energy and love into that conference that people compare you know webstock as the apple of conferences and i know mark you know you can say about apple whatever you like that's fine <laughs> but the 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 execution of the conference of you know the design the feeling at the event everything together is just perfect it's flawless it's unbelievable it okay. is totally unbelievable the um, you know the tagline for they used on their website and in all the marketing material was basically webstock two thousand eleven will be the mostest bestest scientifically proven amazingest conference ever in the his- history of the world fact and it 's true <laughs> it 's an awesome conference it 's incredibly inspirational i mean you don 't go there to necessarily pick up a new technology right you go there because they have really really amazing speakers um who come from all over the place in the web industry so just to give you a bit of an idea who was there this year um for example uh duke bowman uh creative director from twitter former visual design lead at google marco amand um, co-founder and c- former cto of tumblr founder of instapaper uh, let's have a look. Uh, John Gruber, writer and publisher of Daring Fireball, which is a very well-known Apple-related blog, basically. Christina Halverson, she's one of the experts on you know content and content strategy for web- websites. Uh, Michael Kosyaski, he's one of the guys who uh, basically is behind Ruby on Rails. Um, let's have a look. Merlin Mann, creator of 43folders.com uh what else do we have scott mcleod he's um a guy who creates cartoons and he's um uh the author of understanding comics which is basically a book um about comics really well known if you're into you know cartoons and comics and you know some of those people are technical they you know used to be involved with interesting startups, with interesting web technologies, but then others have nothing to do directly with web. So, for example, another person who was presenting was Amanda Palmer, or also known as Amanda fucking Palmer. Sorry for there spitting goes. it out, but it's like, you know, official... <laughs> a, there goes our clean tag. It's officially to put, allowed to just, say that, basically.
1: We and, need to put Not Safe for Work on this podcast yeah. now. Right, thanks.
0: <laughs> and she's, you know, she's a musician. She's... Um, Basically, the chick from Dresden Dolls who is, you know, doing her own thing now. And she was doing a talk at Webstock on how she leverages the web and social media to basically, you know, have a career without a record company. Yeah. And it's just awesome. It's absolutely awesome and inspiring how people use technology and web and, you know, all sorts of things to have a living and to do something really, really cool. The, conf- the conference concept is really make it pretty, um, make it flawless, and have the most awesome speakers you can get come to Wellington in, in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, I totally enjoy attending the conference. And it's, you know, one of the must-do things, I think, for people involved in the web Um when you live in Australia or New Zealand. And surprisingly enough, this year they had a lot of people coming over from um, Australia and from Auckland.
1: Okay. And apparently you played some game called Werewolf, which I've never heard of before.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I can't... That's actually surprising. I can't believe that you have never heard of Werewolf. It's, no. in, in, you know, in some circles, it's also known as Mafia. So it's like a social interaction game which you play with a group of people um basically the werewolf version works roughly you know i I try to explain it roughly in very simple terms you have a village of people so everyone is basically a villager but two of the or three of the people are werewolves and you have a game master or you know someone who who moderates the game And you basically, you know, draw a card and the card shows you your role and you keep your role secret. And the idea is basically, um, if you're the werewolf or if you're one of the werewolves, your intention is to kill villagers. If you're a villager, your intention is to stay alive and lynch the werewolves. (laughs) And it is really, really lots of fun. Basically, it works in a way that um, the group of people sits in a circle or around a large table or something. And basically everyone desperately tries to convince the others that they are not the we- a werewolf basically <laughs> and then you know, after whatever five minutes at some stage the game moderator will say oh you know night is falling and the village has to lynch someone right oh well you don't the village doesn't have to lynch someone but it's good to lynch someone because it might be a werewolf right and you have at least a chance to kill a werewolf <laughs> and it's always good to kill werewolves so um the village basically decides on you know, pretty much a random person and everyone's trying to avoid that. Um, who's going to be killed? The person has to leave the, the, the game and the table. Then night falls and everyone basically has to, you know, cover their eyes or close their eyes. And the werewolves basically um, open their eyes at some stage during the night and they secretly, without talking, agree on someone they kill during the night. And then the village wakes up, everyone opens their eyes, and basically the game moderator points out who got killed by the werewolves and you play that game basically as long as um, either party has won and it is incredibly entertaining to do that, yeah, and we played you know we've played it a few times and we played a game of werewolf basically one night after the conference, and for whatever <laughs> reason, and that's a very, very long complicated story we ended basically up in the hotel room of jason webley play, playing werewolf with like or you know intending to play werewolf with about 20 people or something and jason webley is another musician um who's quite well known in the alternative music scene and it was so funny because you know my, well, my wife said at some stage you know what if i was 20 years younger this would be the most awesome moment of my life i was in the <laughs> hotel room of a rock star <laughs> so you know it was a very very entertaining conference basically so you know Fair enough. and you know okay. the, the werewolf thing i think we should play that at some stage mark
1: okay maybe the next year for objective we will organize a game of werewolf that
0: could be quite good yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah to to wrap up my <laughs> you now rambling about webstock it's <laughs> super worth attending um yeah go there have fun it's great
1: so we've really hit the nail on this podcast with the technical content.
0: Well... Yeah, we, we have some technical content coming, right? It's not that we are totally lost.
1: Okay. Fair okay. enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what boy. next? What next? Uh, is it my choice, is it? Yeah. Um, oh, what do I want to talk about? Ah, uh, I'll skip down just because I feel like it. So I've been having a lot of fun playing with Solar.
0: Ah, Solar S in the search technology, basically.
1: Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Uh, which is now actually bundled with CF, but I'm not actually using it in, in that way. Using it as a as a standalone server. I just want to talk about it a bit because I've just I've written here. Literally, I've written here. Solar is the awesome source. <laughs> that's my te- That's my note on our document because I've just been enjoying it so much. So, um. If people play with it inside the context of cold fusion, um, basically it's a, as a replacement of Verity. If people have used it in the CF9, it's, that's how it's kind of set up. But Solar really can do so much more than that, and it's really kind of set up to do a lot more than that. And it's pretty incredible the way it works and the speed at which it works. Um, the the thing I'm using Solar for at the moment, which I'm really, really, just absolutely adoring, so. Uh, if anyone hasn't really looked at any of the nuts and bolts of SolarWinds, is an Apache project. It's free. It's open source. Um, the guys that have developed it have done a top-notch job. It's just, I'm uh, just very impressed. Um, and basically, it works. Um, there's, there's multiple factors that you can do with it, but one of which is obviously you've got text-based searching. Um, so you can, what you can actually do is you set up indexes in it. And you tell the indexes, first of all, what data you want stored in it. So, for example, whether it's just string text, you can set up multiple values inside indexes. Um, you can tell it how to tokenize each of those, so basically how to interpret each of those things. You know, you can do stuff like copy one field to another and do all sorts of fancy stuff that way. So it's incredibly flexible in terms of how everything gets gets stored in there, which then gives you the extra power on top of that of how you then go through and query it uh, so, for example, you might say, you know, take take this block of text and I want you to convert everything to lowercase and um, tokenize it by white space, for example. You know, just mm. give, me the, give me, break down each sentence into individual words so that when you query it, you can start looking for keywords and things like that. Um, there's all sorts of different ways you can do it and well above and beyond my my uh, understanding of solar and stuff like that. So, incredibly, incredibly useful that way. But one of the most amazing features I've been using recently is the faceted search feature. Which is just, I actually think it just kind of blows my mind how quickly it's doing, it does this. Um, so if anyone's ever been to one of those e-commerce sites, eBay, anything like that, where quite often you'll see, um, you know, this is how many products we have that are books. You know, it'll normally say like books and then the open brackets will be like 233. You know, fantasy, uh, literature, non-fiction, blah, blah, blah. I think nine out of ten times, I think you'll find that's powered by solar. Um, and it's pretty incredible. You basically turn around to Solar and you say, all right, I want you to give me all my books and I want you to facet on category. And it just goes, oh, sweet, no worries. Uh, here's all your categories. Here's the numbers next to them. Done. Oh, what nice. else do you want to okay. <laughs> <So>, know? <laughs> what else do you want to know? And you just go, like, "Where?" What?
0: <laughs> so what's the relationship between Solar and Lucene then? Okay, so Solar...
1: Yes, there is one. Um, Solo sits on top of the Lucene package. So Lucene's not a server. Now this is, I'm making sure I get this right, I hope. Um, Lucene's, I think, pretty much like a... Oh, God. I'm going to make sure I get this right, but I, I need to, may need to double-check this. So take it with a grain of salt. But from the stuff I've done with Lucene previously, because I did some stuff with Hibernate Search back in the day, pretty much Lucene's a combination of like a file format and an API to access that. So it is a search format, so you can pretty much set up indexes inside that as well, and you can search it normally um, by doing, uh, it's pretty much basically text-based searches, so you can do some pretty complex text-based searches on it. But Solar gives you some functionality above and beyond that, and also sets it up as a a high-end scalable web server application that you can set up, which is a pretty big thing. So Solar also does all sorts of neat stuff like replication, you can scale it across nodes, you can scale it across clusters, You you can do all that sort of fun stuff.
0: So basically, Solar is a wrapper for Lucene. Pretty yeah, but it does.
1: Yeah, but like faceted search, for example, that's Solar only. You can't get that in Lucene. Okay. Um, there's all sorts of other bits and pieces that are specific only to Solar. So there's there's definitely a. It's not just like a hey, it's just a wrapper. It's there's a lot of extra stuff on there. But it's it's pretty incredible and blazingly fast. I'm just very impressed with it. Um, and yeah, the faceted search sort of thing. So if you start doing going down that road where um, you need that sort of functionality or you need sort of crazy search functionality. Solar is a great product to look at and not particularly hard to set up. I'm actually pretty impressed with, uh, with how easy it is to get up and running. The examples are really good. Um, the documentation isn't, I would say, the best, um, but there's a fantastic book that I've been reading, which, of course, I can't remember the name of. Um, I think it's Impact Publishing, which is brilliant. It's actually brilliant. It's really brilliant. It takes you through setting up an index, how to how to search, how to do all that sort of stuff, um, and also through how to deploy. You know, what what are, the, what are pitfalls of the deploy? It gives you some gives you some uh, guidelines and recommendations on best ways to deploy. It goes through clustering, scaling, like the whole gamut. It's actually a fantastic book, and if you pick up the book, you can run with it without any problem whatsoever. I don't think it's particularly expensive either.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: So, yeah, I'm, just, yeah, I'm, I'm drinking the, the solar Kool-Aid at the moment. I'm just loving it. It's That's awesome. That's f-
0: perfectly fine. So, how does it integrate into ColdFusion? Um, it, it installs as its own service, doesn't it?
1: Yep. Yeah, so um, you can run it on any J2E web server. So, if you're already running one of those with ColdFusion, you could always deploy it on there, or you could stick it on something like Jetty or Tomcat or anything like that. Um, the actual download for Solo comes with uh, an example um, app, So you can actually just run uh, java.jar or java-jar start.jar in the examples, and it'll just fire it up, and it's got embedded Java Jetty in it. So if you just want to have a quick go and have a play with it, um, it's in there. And I think there's Amazon AMIs as well. Um, But it also comes bundled with a Java client that you can use, and that's the one I've been using, uh, which just makes life really easy. So I just loaded that up with Java Loader and just ran with it, and it's been beautiful. Uh, the nice thing about that is it uses a binary format to com- to talk to Solo, so it's really, really quick. If you don't want to go down that route for whatever reason, I can't think of a good one, uh, there's a whole REST-based interface into Solar, which brings back JSON data, so you can actually even talk yep. to it if you really want to through JavaScript um, and any other sort of ajax or RAE um,
0: front-end, basically. Front-end, if also you want to,
1: yeah. yeah. So there's all sorts of fun stuff that way. So it's, yeah, very, very, very good stuff.
0: That's interesting. Do How how would it work in a cluster scenario? I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking like, yeah. let's say you have, I don't know, 10 Cold Fusion servers, for instance, right?
1: So depending and on how many solar servers you need. Um, actually, that's an interesting question because I probably haven't played with it too much, but I know solar, you could either have a single sol- solar um, server if it handles the load you need. Mm-hmm. You can cluster them. Now, I haven't read too much about clustering from what I understand. You could possibly replicate as well across the cluster the, the solar indexes. So you can make sure that they all stay in sync. So in theory, you could probably round robin them as well if you had some sort of round robin system in the front. I actually haven't read too much about it, but I know it's definitely supported because um, reading through solar, uh, for example, uh, if you've ever seen Zappos, the American uh, shoe store.
0: Yes, I know that. Yeah.
1: Um, if you read this stuff they've actually put out press releases they use solar in the back end I think they use a cluster of about 11 servers it's about 11 solar servers in the back end um, so it's definitely possible I just haven't really gone into it very much okay.
0: It's yeah it sounds definitely interesting I mean just from listening to you I have already an idea how I could use it for a client yeah you know, it's for some stuff we're currently doing it's at one pretty of
1: incredible clients. and stupid fast just stupid fast
0: yeah that sounds definitely very good fast is always good
1: Fast is always good. And they've also they've done really clever stuff in terms of deployment and migration and things like that. So you can, um, you can set things up where, where you don't have to actually take down the server and start it back up again. You can actually do stuff where you can actually copy an entire index from another index, like just as a copy, same as you would like copy paste. Mm-hmm. Repopulate your, the one that you've got on the side with whatever data you want and then switch them real time. It's like hot swapping. I can rate arrays. It's brilliant. So you just go, oh, I'll just make sure all my data's fine in that. Yep, it's all good. Great. Production's running on the other on the other index. You go, yep, sweet. Now swap them over. Thank you very much. Swap them over. And then you can get rid of the other one when you're done. You know, it's just neat stuff like that that just solve those sort of very common problems. So I'm very impressed with that stuff.
0: Okay. Very interesting. I definitely have a look into that. Cool. While we're at technical topics, should we just talk about the next one as well? All right, sure. Um... I can, I'm happily leading Startup that, actually. Stuff. Yeah, I I was dealing with um, a client's infrastructure a while ago, and um, we had some really, really weird memory issues. Um, so to give you a bit of a context, it's a system with uh, ColdFusion 8 at the moment running 64-bit, uh, lots of RAM. We've got a huge heap. We've got a 6-gig heap in there. Um, on an 8-gig machine, basically, or on 8-gig machines. And um, initially, when we set up that whole system, we did a lot of memory garbage collection pause-time tuning because there is a bit of complex infrastructure behind it which requires basically extremely low or short pauses. So we are basically running um, the concurrent mark sweep garbage collector on that ColdFusion server, which worked perfectly fine. All of a sudden, and out of the blue, well, that's what we thought at least, the memory and garbage collection behavior changed quite dramatically by basically not cleaning up properly in um, full garbage collections anymore. Yeah, memory leak. Yeah, it, it definitely looked like a memory leak. And the problem was, unfortunately, around the time when we started you know or when we th- when we th- where we think it started quite a few changes happened happened in the infrastructure in the code um and there was a bit of overlap so it was really hard to pinpoint you know if it was our code or the fact that we introduced a new framework or you know just an increase in load in general or something that happened on the server or with the hosting company or yada 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 hmm. so what it finally was Was basically a memory leak with the um, SQL Server JDBC drivers, and that is really, really interesting. That's why I want to talk about that a little bit. And before we go into
1: what the memory leak was, just have a how did you end up finding it? This Um, is always an interesting topic in and of itself.
0: We we basically started to we just started to look into. our code into doing heap dumps into seeing yep. you know what's going on in our code. We were we were basically running running um, Visual garbage collection as a plugin into uh, what is it called Visual VM basically, and we oh, did, yep. did a lot of um, JVM monitoring. And um, initially, so we, you... we, initially we couldn't really find anything basically. And mm-hmm. um, at some stage, we just looked at you know some of the settings basically in the data sources. And realized there is a setting. Um, what is it called? Max pooled statements. Yep. And that it had an incredible high amount of statements that the, each data source was pooling. I think it was s- set to 1,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, basically we just you know played with that setting, lowered it, and the situation became better. And at that time, we didn't even have, you know, we didn't even investigate the heap dumps massively. Okay. But then, you know, when I realized that this is going to help the problem, Mark and I had a quick chat and you basically said, oh, you know, I've seen that before, actually. Is it some sort of, you know, related to prepared statement objects not being cleaned up? I think it was prepared statement objects, wasn't it? And yeah, and that's what it was, actually. So there is definitely some sort of a problem in that driver, or in the way Fusion is tied into that driver, that basically if you um, have high load on your data sources or on your server, and you, you're pooling um, the prepared statements in your data source, you end up with a bit of an odd memory behavior.
1: Now, just to be clear on this as well, I've only ever seen it on ColdFusion 8 yeah. and on SQL Server. Yeah, that is exactly nine,
0: yeah. my experience. Yeah. And that's exactly yeah. the scenario where we had that issue in, basically. Yeah. Um, we're going to migrate this whole infrastructure to ColdFusion 9 at some yep. stage in the future. And then I'll be able to, you know, let everyone know if it occurs there as well.
1: That would be actually really interesting. Because it's it's, it's
0: actually hard to find. You need to have a really, really high load on your machines yeah. and on your dollar sources to to see that in the first place. Yeah. And what we think in, you know thinking about the, the different changes we've made to our infrastructure around the time it started, we basically always used to have like six to eight data sources on one ColdFusion server. And at some stage, basically, more sites got enabled on those machines. And all of a sudden, we had like 30-odd data sources on the same uh-huh. server. And that obviously increased the amount of you know pooling a lot. And I think that at some stage it just you know kicked it over the edge, and was like yeah, too much, not good.
1: Okay, the in the in the the place that I saw it, um, I was actually contracted in to have a look for a memory leak, um, and because I'd, I'd written some stuff on using heap dumps. Now, if, if anyone doesn't know what a heap dump is, um, you can turn around to Java when you're doing stuff and say actually it gives you gives you a snapshot of what the memory looks like. Um, at any given point in time. They're normally pretty large because obviously if they have a heap of about one and a half gig, then you normally get a snapshot of about one and a half gig. Uh,
0: yeah, it was, it was not much fun to create those heap dumps <laughs> with a six gig heap, actually.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it wasn't. Oh. Um, but they're very useful. I use a tool, I've used the Eclipse Memory Analyzer Toolkit or Eclipse Mat, if you're Googling for it. And it's really, really good. So you can actually see the state of every Java object under the, under the hood at that given point in time and how many there are and start looking for leaks and things like that and why they aren't being garbage collected. Fantastic tool. Um, for anyone who's going down that road, you need to have a bit of an understanding of Java, obviously, and be kind of what's going on under the hood called Fusion, which can take some time, but it's always interesting to explore. Um, but yeah, you... totally. Go
0: on. Uh, sorry. Did you know that um, Visual v- VM basically allows you to live inspect your heap?
1: Yeah, I have. I don't know how to hook that up. The, it's, can you do uh, that on production servers.
0: Um, yeah, it has obviously a, an impact, right? I mean, a performance impact if you do that. Yeah, it's So with, a, I don't a know if I would do it with a six gig heap. The it, it's quite interesting, and it seems to it seems to be that it depends a bit on the JVM you are running if it works or not. Okay. Because I can run it fine on. Um, On my mac actually i can just you know hook it in and i can live Mm -hmm. inspect my heap but on some windows jvms i just couldn't get the the live inspection to work for whatever reason and i it just could be different issues yeah Yeah. it could be whatever permissions issue or something i don't know but i just couldn't so you know it it's definitely a very interesting feature because you see right away what's going on you know you start a server you see which objects are generated you know even if you if you are the only user of an application, and let's say you want to find out what's happening when you log on or when you, you know, when your session expires, yeah, that's a very very nice feature because you see right away. Oh, you know, this object is, it has no reference anymore. It gets garbage collected. It go goes away, or it doesn't go away. Then maybe there's a problem.
1: Yep. In my experience, what I've often done is um, set up. There's a JVM arg that says, give me a heap dump when memory overflows. Mm-hmm. I've used that a lot because often that's the time when you want to snapshot it. You want to be like, okay, when everything's all filled up and what's it filled up with, let me know. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, for this, this particular instance, basically, yeah, ended up doing that, went in through the usual culprits, you know, is there extra stuff in the application scope? Has somebody been bunging stuff in the service scope? Is there too many service, you know, session scope variables lying around? And ended up doing, um, Matt does a really nice thing where it says, you know, give me a list of what it thinks are memory leaks. And I just saw thousands upon thousands upon thousands of prepared statements that weren't being garbage collected and went, that's no good. Um, dropped the max pooling down to zero and and did some garbage collection tweaking. And yeah, that solved that quite nicely, actually. It was pretty good.
0: Okay. Interesting.
1: So, but yeah, there's it's, yeah, doing the memory analysis stuff is always fascinating. Something I've been meaning to write about for years and never really got around to.
0: I think a lot of it is some sort of, you know, considered to be dark art, basically, Bit. Because it's it, it's hard to find information on it. You know, you have to yeah. go through gazillions of blog posts or you know, like mailing list posts to even get an idea how everything plays together.
1: Yeah, and also I think there's some understanding of what's going on in the cold fusion under the under the hood in cold fusion in terms of what actually means what. Uh, you know, how do you find the service scope? How do you find CFCs? How do you find you know all that sort of stuff? And if you haven't really played around in there and, and you kind of have to just play around in there to see what's what that you, it becomes difficult to find things yeah. So, but it's always good fun
0: yeah I agree so you know the essence of this is just be aware if you use SQL Server on ColdFusion 8 with high load and you have memory issues maybe have a look at your data source advanced settings max pool statements and play with that
1: yeah that works
0: cool what else is on our topic list for today?
1: Your choice. What do you feel like?
0: Ah, uh, should we talk about certifications?
1: Yeah, that's always an interesting topic.
0: I I actually put that onto onto our list because I'm just going through a whole bunch of Adobe certifications. Yeah. Um, not really that I you know do that for a particular reason. It's um well I mean yeah there is a particular reason because I'm a certified instructor and you need to you know keep up with certifications in a certain way to keep your status going basically yep. um, but you know whenever I do that like every whatever 18 months when new releases of software come out etc I start wondering what is the actual value of vendor certifications beyond being part of a vendor program um, and what I personally find or found a lot I mean I'm I've been doing ColdFusion certifications since ColdFusion 4.5, for example. Yep. And what I found, f- at least for the certification exams from 4.5 to 7, was pretty much that the questions didn't really change much. Oh, really? You, I, you know, you did I did 4.5 in, I don't know, whatever, 2001 or something like that. And you get a set of questions and you obviously, you know, you memorize stuff. It's just what happens, right? You know yeah, yeah. what questions are and then i did cf5 and cf6 and cf7 and you find like 80% of the questions are still exactly the same and i mean exactly the same you know you go oh, in it's... there and you just tick oh yeah you know i know this question third answer From is correct
1: time. right yeah now. yeah
0: and you think like well you know what's the point really besides you know having a formal tick in some box i think in particularly for Cold Fusion, it has changed a bit with the Cold Fusion 8 and particularly with the Cold Fusion 9 exam Yep. The ColdFusion 9 exam has become much, much better than any other exam before, I think. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is useful from, that, from, from my point of view for that. If, you, if I meet someone who's certified for whatever, ColdFusion 8 or for ColdFusion 9, I would at least feel comfortable that the person knows a reasonable amount of things of the product. And particularly when it comes to newer things like ORM, because mm. both exams actually cover quite a bit of ORM and Hibernate and, you know, persistence okay. stuff in cold Fusion, which makes totally sense to me.
1: I still haven't done CF9. I did CF8 ages ago, and I haven't, haven't actually
0: bothered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's from my point of view, it's worth doing if, you know, you just want to test yourself, have a look at the exam, and, you know, maybe keep your instructor status up and running, basically. Yeah. But then I've done other exams, um, and I'm not particularly saying which ones. But you know, there are other ad- exams, and that's, that's not just an Adobe product. It's a problem. That's a problem in the Java world or in the database world as well. It's basically yep. a problem of all those certification exams. You can pass them without really knowing much if you okay. know what the questions are. On you know, well, not, that... <laughs> not exactly what the question, sorry, no, that was not, not really well expressed. Not what the questions are, but if you know how the exams work, right, and what, yeah, okay. how people think of writing exam questions, what their intentions are, basically. So you have usually like four, you know, it's multiple choice. You have like four answers. Two of them are obviously unrealistic and rubbish. One could be it the other one could be it maybe a bit more so you have realistically you choose between two of the yeah that's what i feel what i find most of the time and i found myself just a while ago doing an exam um or you know booking an exam i thought that's probably a long shot because i haven't used that product for about two years not even touched it and i went into the exam and i passed I mean, not, okay. not you know, super awesome with like 99% or 100%, but I passed quite a bit above the threshold, basically. And I thought, well, you know, that is some sort of really scary if I'm able to pass that exam, even though I haven't really any had any recent experience with the product, just by intelligent guessing and stuff I had memorized from, you know, back two years ago, that's probably not really what it should be. Um, and that's... I think the core of the problem, why a lot of people don't appreciate vendor exams a lot.
1: I can understand that.
0: I'd I totally say can. That,
1: yeah. Yeah. I kind of almost say that, uh, certifications and, and that sort of stuff is probably more important to people who are looking for work. Now I say looking for work either as, uh, I'm looking for a new job or be if you're a consultant or a contractor and you're constantly looking for work. Um, I think those things are probably a good thing for you just because it can make it easier or it's just another sort of lubricant for getting your foot in the door.
0: It is. And I think the more corporate your employer or your client is, yeah. the more it can make a difference. I mean, that's sort of obvious, right? Yeah. At the end I of mean, the day. if
1: if you don't know what you're talking about, then you're not going to get in anyway, but it may get you the interview if nothing else so that you can actually express yourself properly. You know, it's it can be that little extra bit that just kind of solidifies your position there and that, that can never hurt.
0: Tell me tell me one thing. When you Let's say you wanted to hire someone, right? As yeah. an employee for yourself. And you have two candidates that are equally qualified, you know, equally, I don't know, they are identical, let's say, right? One person has called Fusion certification, the other person doesn't. Would you actually make your decision on who to hire, um, dependent on the fact that one person has a certification or not?
1: No, I wouldn't make my decision on who to hire, but if somebody sends me a resume or somebody sends me some details and they are certified, I'd probably talk to them. Mm, Okay. That's, that's probably where I take it. Like certification, I don't think it's a hire or fire decision, um, that's more, that, that boils down to interview uh, questions, you know, does your personality fit with the team, that sort of stuff. That's way more important to me personally than, than certification. But if they've got a decent resume and they've got certification, um, and I'm going through a stack of people just because, you know, you know, if I've got 50 people I need to interview, not that that ever happens, but say I did, um, that may necessarily bump you a few notches up the stack.
0: Yeah. So you basically it's it, it's a it's an option to jump the queue, yeah. basically.
1: But also it also just shows some level of commitment too, you know. If you're if you're looking for work and you're serious about looking for work, and I'm not saying that people who don't take certification are, so please don't put that in my mouth. Um, but there's a certain amount of commitment there. You've taken the time to study, mm-hmm. you obviously you know, that's you're you're doing what you need to do to kind of get the job done. That to me is a big Hello. this person's, you know, they're willing to, to work to get to where they need to go. Um, so that's, that's always a good thing in my mind too.
0: And that is actually a very valid point. I think um, that's what a lot of people who say certi- certification is not really worth my time miss out on. Because if you, let's say, if you study for a certification exam... It basically means you go through the list of topics the vendor published, right? Yeah. And you have to think about, you know, like, oh, you know, can I actually – do I feel comfortable to answer questions on those topics? Yeah. And eventually, you most likely will have to read up or, you know, upskill on at least a few of those topics, right? Let's say in Fusion 9, some of the ORM stuff is totally new and you have never really dealt with that before – so before you go into the certification exam, you probably want to read a few blog posts. Or even if you just read the documentation, you know, that's good enough, mm. probably. Or you write a few CFCs or a few pages to try things out and to figure out how it works. So it's, it's actually a way of upskilling without actually noticing that you're upskilling, which that I think sense. is a really, really good thing, actually.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah, that works too. That works too. i got no problem with that either. So so yes, I think it's actually quite funny. I think we could almost agree that in, in some and in a lot of cases, the test itself probably sucks. And if anyone actually looked at what you were being tested on, they'd probably go, oh, that's really not that valuable. But the act of getting yourself prepared and the willingness to actually do it shows a certain level of commitment and, and does some stuff that actually can be quite... Um, kind of beneficial for you if you're if you're looking for work that exactly. way. Exactly.
0: Yes. Yeah. I totally agree.
1: So, mm,
0: I didn't. We actually ended
1: up. <laughs> we actually ended up in a place I didn't think we were going to end up.
0: Not at all. <laughs> um. So you know, if if you're listening to this and if you have an opinion on certifications, I'd love to hear it because that's some sort of you know it's always interesting to get feedback what other people think about those things. So you know, when we publish this podcast I, in our blog then um, you're very welcome to leave a comment and um, uh, give us some feedback on what you think about those exams. Are they useful? Are they not useful? Would you hire someone or, you know, wouldn't it matter for a hiring decision, et cetera?
1: Yeah, no. And any other feedback, please feel free to drop it on the blog or send us either as an email or add us on Twitter or any of that sort of good stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, before we come to the, to an end... I just want to talk about one st- one thing. And that one thing are dice.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Seriously. Those are... Uh, it, it's really hard to, hard to, you know, talk about those die, basically, without actually seeing the webpage in front of you. There's a website called um, glyphobet.net slash store slash dice. And the guy who runs that website has basically produced so-called Mathematician's Dice. And If
1: if you Google for Mathematician's Dice, I think you should be able to find it. Okay.
0: They are totally the awesome. It's it's unbelievable. (laughs) And I have to bring this up because Mark laughed at me the whole morning when we talked about the podcast and prepared everything, basically. They are basically, you know, like... As a normal board game player Or if you play whatever uh, You know like some games You have a six sided die Mm -hmm. And it has numbers from one to six And there are variations Sometimes you have like numbers from one to three But they are on the die twice or whatever That guy has produced a die Which covers all Important mathematical Symbols like pi Like i which is You know like um, the square Root of minus one And if you ask yourself, what the hell is the square root of minus one? The answer is it's I. But, you know, that's fine. Um, So, zero, one is on there. An E is there, which is the Euler uh, Euler number. And it's just awesome. And Mark asked correctly, what would you need those i for? I said, well, you don't need them for anything (laughs) as such. But I have a math background. I basically did, um, my whole uni was a math program and I ended up with a master's in math, basically. So for me, it's awesome. It's cool. You know, it's, it's the essence of math expressed on a die. It's so awesome. And the if other we,
1: thing... if we ever end up playing like monopoly together and you bring these out and roll like an eye and say, I'm going to move I across this board, we're <laughs> going to have issues. I just <laughs> want to make that clear.
0: Well, we have a few issues, right? Because, if you have an, a pi, how would you move 3.14-something you know, <laughs> exactly. spaces on the board? That doesn't quite work that well, right? But what you can do is if you have a two-dimensional coordinate system, a grid basically with x and y-axis, you can uh-huh. roll two dies and you can basically roll a complex number. How awesome is that?
1: Oh, Kai, no. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: uh, no. It's funny. I like math too, so I can't. I can't laugh too much. But uh, no, I
0: find it. I find it actually really awesome. And they are unfortunately sold out at the moment. They are sold out at the moment. If I, uh, you know, if they come, I, I'm on the waiting list basically. So I'm getting some when they are available again.
1: And great. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so happy for you.
0: I am happy to. That is, you know, my little spleen, basically. Cool. Cool.
1: Should we talk about some local events before we wrap things up?
0: Yep, let's do that. So, um, there are a few things going on locally in Australia and New Zealand. I mean, mainly Australia, apparently, this week at least.
1: I think so. Uh, we've got the Adobe Refresh. Um, now, when is that happening? I'm just That's actually up...
0: happening today in Brisbane. Today oh, yep. is March the first. It's happening tomorrow in Sydney and on the third in Melbourne, and it's basically a full day event. It's um, some sort of a roadshow where yep. um, Adobe is coming to town and they are um, showing the audience a whole bunch of, you know, reasonably new technologies like uh, multi-screen development, Flash development, HTML five, how Flash and HTML five play together. Um, they show uh, solutions which are sort of um, based in that digital publishing space, like, you know, ebook creation and electronic magazine creation stuff. I think they're going to talk about Flash Builder and, you know, the the future of Flash Builder, which is yep. um, currently out there in public preview, Burrito and Hero, which is Flash Builder 4.5 and Flex 4.5. Yep. And they apparently do some sort of a sneak peeks, Um, session. I have no idea what's exactly in there. But all that being said, the speakers are quite interesting. Um, They've got two local guys, which are Paul Burnett and Michael Stollard. Um, And they've got Ryan Stewart and Richard Galvan, who came over from the US. Um, And they basically, the four of them, um, share the sessions of the day pretty much. And I think this particular refresh tour is going up to... Asia um, after Australia, so probably next week they are in places like I don't know Singapore, probably in China somewhere, I don't know.
1: Oh, cool. That's cool. I'm, I'm actually not going. I really should actually, because it's, it's walking distance from my house. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but no, I'm not going. Um, It is $25 a head, which is actually different for, for a refresh, but that's not the end of the world um it says is including the best of adobe max i know from refreshes past and have been at max quite often it's sort of uh mostly repeat content from max i think would you agree with that statement
0: yeah probably to be honest i've never been at one because the only one adobe was doing in um new zealand was always up in auckland and because in most of the years i've been to max so i always thought ah, uh, you know it's If it was in Wellington, if it was local, I would go. But if I have to travel to Auckland, actually, and, you know, take a flight and I'm over there for the whole day, it's a bit too much for something I already know.
1: Fair enough. Though, an interesting thing, I was just looking at the page right now, it is sponsored by BlackBerry. So, it's possible you might see some playbook
0: stuff. That is entirely possible. I wonder if, you know, the prices they mention in the agenda, you know, like sneak peeks and prices... Could, could entail some, you know, REM, RIM devices. I don't know. I mean, that's I a know. wild guess. That's not totally a wild guess. <laughs>
1: well, if anyone's actually attended, um, put a put a note or send us an email or let us know if they were doing any BlackBerry or Playbook or what the prizes were or all that sort of stuff. Let us know what happened and how how it went.
0: Yeah, and let me express my disappointment that they don't do New Zealand this year. I'm no, really unhappy about that.
1: Okay. Fair
0: enough. Cool. So, and the other thing we wanted to mention quickly, um, because it's another local event, is the Cold Fusion user group in West Australia. They are going to have um, a very well-known figure in the Cold Fusion world coming over and present at their user group. But that person is not presenting on ColdFusion, Funny enough. Who could that be? Mark, have a wild I guess. Believe-
1: I believe it's Mr. Tim Bantel.
0: It is Mr. Tim Bantel. Very interesting. So Tim Bantel um, works for Microsoft now, as we've mentioned. Well, not directly, but indirectly mentioned a bit earlier. And they are doing a Microsoft Cloud Technologies Roadshow. He co- he goes to WA and um, he's taking the chance to present at the Ecofusion User Group, Western Australia as well. And I think actually Tim has some sort of a secret master plan of making sure that ColdFusion can run on Microsoft Azure or something like that. There must be really? like something in his <laughs> in his pocket, I don't know.
1: Okay, that should be interesting. Well, wait, do, you, do you know when the Western Australian user group meeting is? Um,
0: I knew that, actually. I think it's on the 16th of March. Let me just double check and confirm that and maybe you can entertain our listeners in the meantime for about half a minute half well, a
1: minute you got while me. I need on. to
0: find the page and you know look up the event
1: so that's good so you just put me on the spot like that and, and now I have to make up something yeah oh good um, good. that's great thanks a lot Kai I really appreciate that um, you found it yet
0: <laughs> no the page doesn't load for whatever reason for me oh <laughs> gosh
1: but um, yeah, so if you if anyone hasn't seen Tim Tim speak, I'd re- highly recommend going to see him speak. I'd actually probably go hear him speak about Paintbrush. He's probably one of the most entertaining speakers I've heard in a very long time. Um, and I still remember back in the day, and I think it was Webdu two thousand and five two thousand and six, where he did I think it was the CF seven Cold Fusion Preview. At Webdu, without saying a single word, yeah, throughout he did the a silent, a
0: silent movie style presentation. And it, was and it was so was entertaining. Brilliant, yeah,
1: brilliant, absolutely brilliant.
0: He um, was he was an actor in his former life. Do you know that?
1: Former life or actual former life?
0: Well, I mean, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: as a former profession, or are you saying like comically as a former life?
0: No, no, as a former profession. Okay, wow. A- that- that- um, so I found the meeting. Actually, it's on March sixteenth, five thirty at Pedersen Securities um, Exchange Plaza in Perth.
1: Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, the word goes out to anyone in the ANZ region. If you have any particular events you want us to promote, please send them through, and we're more than happy to put them up or talk about them. I should say.
0: Totally. If you listen to this and you have an event, l- make sure you you know get it to us roughly the weekend before the second week we record that we can plan with it and mention it.
1: That wasn't complicated at all.
0: No, I was, I I realized that it was not really clear. So let's tell us (laughs) us as
1: soon as possible. How does that
0: work? Just tell us and we put it in the next podcast. Exactly. That
1: works.
0: Cool. So that's pretty much it for today, isn't it? I think so. Awesome. Now I can do some real work.
1: (laughs) Now I can start my day.
0: (laughs) Cool. Thanks again for listening in. Um, As always, we appreciate any feedback, positive, negative, crazy, whatever you want to give us, basically. Especially the crazy. Especially the crazy. And um, if everything goes according to plan, we'll be back in about two weeks. Sounds wonderful. Yes. All right. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks very much. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.